what we're going to do is we're going to study John. And I want to introduce you to him this evening in a way that perhaps will drive you to once again go to the Gospel of John and to read it, to put aside the commentaries and the exegesis and the exposition and everything you've ever heard about the Gospel of John and say, Jesus, do it the way you did it the first time. Do it the way you did it the first time I read John. Move in my heart, renew my soul, make me smell like Jesus. Now I'm going to do something that's a little bit different this evening. I'm going, we'll be referring to the Gospel of John as we go along, but I'm going to take a text that isn't from the Gospel of John, though it is from the Apostle John. And it's First John, and I'm going to do that because it so captures the flavor of everything that John wrote. There's an immediacy, an existential reality in these words. So if you have your Bible first, go to First John, and I'm going to start reading uh, at the, uh, if I can find it here. I'm going to start reading at the first verse of the first chapter of 1 John, where John, the apostle, writes as follows, That which was from the beginning, that which we had heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we've seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things that our joy and your joy may be full. There's some dull stuff that we probably ought to get to before we look at some of the things you ought to watch for when you're going through the Gospel of John. First question is, who wrote John? Duh, who's buried in Grant's tomb? <laughs> now, there's been a lot of controversy about this particular gospel, but it has changed in our favor of late, and John himself wrote the gospel of John. Not only did he write the gospel of John, if you flip over to Revelation, he wrote the book of Revelation too. If you read the letters of John from which I just read, it's the same guy. You don't know the name Wynn Kenyon, but he was a very controversial figure in Presbyterian circles at one time. He refused to ordain women, and all of the denomination became divided around Wynn Kenyon. I wish I had the time to give you a lesson in ecclesiastical politics and the things that Wynn Kenyon suffered during that time. But shortly after that, I was telling the elders, and that took place in Pittsburgh. And I was telling 
our elders about when and what he had gone through and how they needed to be praying for him. And one of my elders, Jim Youngblood, was deep sea fishing, and he was fishing with three other guys, one of whom was new to my elder. He found out that he was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And, uh, and uh, my uh, elder, and God bless him, I loved him, decided that it would be a good time to give this young man who was on this fishing boat a lesson in ecclesiastical politics. Jim told me later, Steve, I went through every detail. I told him everything you taught me about it. I asked him to pray for Win Kenyon. And I said, well, what, what did he say? Jim said he took off his hat and he grinned and he said, I'm the guy. <laughs> he said, I couldn't believe that he let me go for 45 minutes talking about him when he's the guy. Well, that's with John. There's been a lot of controversy in the church. John, because it's a different style, couldn't write the book of Revelation. You ought to see the first book I've written and compare it to the last book I've lit, written. It's a different style altogether. And John takes his hat off and he grins and he says, I'm, I'm the guy. You read his letters and you think, and then you read the commentaries, and they say there's some doubt about who wrote these letters. And then John stands there, grins, and takes off his hat, and he says, I'm the guy. Bishop John Robinson is a name that you don't know, but he was famous also in his time. He was a bishop in the Episcopal Church and was an atheist. And he wrote a book, although he wouldn't admit it, he wrote a book called Honest to God. Toward the end of his life, Bishop Robinson had a turn around. First, because he was cramming for finals, and as one who is cramming for finals, it clears your head, and you think a lot about Jesus. But the thing that set it off was the discovery of a fragment of the Gospel of John that was extant from the first century. He had been saying that John had been written in the third, maybe even the fourth century. And when he saw the fragment, he went, I could have had a V8. Modern scholarship has done that for us with the gospel of John and the other writings of John. When was it written? Well, it was written toward the end of the first century of the Christian era. He... He was, John, the last apostle alive. And he was sent, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, to the Isle of Patmos. It's not a place where you want to go. And it was there that he received the vision about which he wrote in the book of Revelation. The other apostles, Peter, had been crucified upside down. Bartholomew had been run through with the sword. Matthew had been hacked to pieces, and it goes on and on, and John watched them all die, and he was the only one left. There's an old tradition that's pretty legitimate, that as he was dying, he grabbed the hands of the men who stood around him, and he said, little children, love one another. Little children love 
one another. One of the interesting things about John is that throughout John, there are lists of sevens all over the place. There are seven times that Jesus says, I am. There are seven affirmations to his deity, and it goes on and on. So when I was working on this yesterday, I decided I would look for seven things that I would teach you to look for when you go to the Gospel of John. And so without further chit-chat, let's dig in. The first thing you ought to look for when you go to the Gospel of John is Jesus. The first thing you ought to look for when you go to the Gospel of John is Jesus. In the beginning was the word John says, and when that message is given, there's a thrill that is so powerful that even today, having read it 10,000 times and taught it 100 times, I want to stand up with every cell in my body singing the Hallelujah Chorus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As you read through John, you'll see Jesus in a way that the synoptic writers won't show Jesus. We're going to see why later on. You're going to have the smell of Jesus in your life in a way that you can't get any other place in Scripture. As you read through John, look for Jesus and listen for his voice and be quiet so you can hear the soft sound of sandaled feet. As some of you know, I was Richard Nixon's pastor for a little while. Actually, Watergate had taken place by the time I got to the church. Everybody thought he was ugly, and his mother dressed him funny. So I got to know him after he had been deposed from office and had moved back to California. He would come to Florida and stay with his friend B.B. Rebozo, and they would come to church, and I got to know him. But back in the day when he was still president, word would get out. And by the way, I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. You haven't lived until you sit in your study and the press from all over the world surrounds you. And they want to hear what you have to say because I was the president's pastor. And I said, uh, I'm something else kind of like the preacher who preached in a famous pulpit and said to his wife, wonder how many famous preachers have preached in that pulpit. And she said, one less than you think. And if I could have been quiet, I could hear the angels laughing at me. And Richard Nixon never came, but one Sunday he was gonna come. And people came in droves because it got in the paper that the president was going to be worshiping in the church where I was the pastor. You have no idea how hard I worked on that sermon. The secret service came in on Saturday. They looked under every chair in our sanctuary, behind every door, making sure that the president would be safe when he came. And you know what? He didn't show. <laughs> he decided to sleep in, I guess. I don't know what happened. But when it became clear the president wasn't going to be there, people 
a lot of people got up and left. I am not a nice person. Jesus is working on me. But to their backs, I said, go ahead and leave if you want to. But Jesus is here, and that should be reason sufficient for you to be here. And the next morning, I was quoted in the Miami Herald for what I said. <laughs> Jesus really is sufficient, isn't he? And you go through John, remember that the Christian faith is about Jesus. I have a lot of friends who are so screwed up theologically you wouldn't believe it. I wrote to two pastors this morning who said things that you would blush if you had read them. But they're my brothers because they get Jesus. <laughs> R.C. Sproul is my brother. He gets Jesus. But so does Joel Osteen. So do my charismatic brothers and my Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. I want you to know the dispensationalists are wrong. I know. I'm ordained and I speak from Sinai and I know about things like this. But they get Jesus. When somebody gets Jesus, that's enough. It really is. I don't care how much theology you know. If it doesn't point to him, it is useless. And so the Gospel of John is the place where uniquely and beautifully and quietly Jesus himself will come to you and you will hear his voice. And that brings me to the second thing you ought to work out as you read through the Gospel of John. It's not only about Jesus, it's about you. It's about me. It's about us. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, you can believe in me too. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it weren't true, I would have told you. Child, you're healed, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. On every verse of John, you'll find yourself. You'll hear about forgiveness. You'll hear about love. You'll see a woman caught in adultery and you'll think about your lust and you'll hear the sound of the stones dropping on the dry ground as the judges leave. It's about you. It's about me. And we're in this book. I think I'll die the next time somebody says, it's not about you, it's about God. I know that. I'm a five-point Calvinist. <laughs> I can repeat Westminster backwards. I know it's not about me and that it's about God. But let me tell you something. It's about me too. We stand before the God of the universe and he says, I am. And you have every right to say, I am too. The whole thrust of Scripture is written because God thought about you. It's his glorification because that's where our joy is.
It is about him because we're going to stand before the throne and sing his praises. But it's about us. When Jesus went to the cross and they drove nails into his hands and feet, he thought about you. He knew my name. When he prepared and Jill Briscoe said that when Eve took the bite of the fruit and the juice gripped down the side of her face, Jesus prepared for Bethlehem. It's about you. It's about me. As you know, I teach seminary students and I tell them, don't communicate knowledge to people because there's a man on the front row who's thinking about sleeping with his secretary. There's a woman in your congregation whose husband died the night before. There are kids who are determining about their lives. There are people who are broken and lonely and empty and who've been abused. And if you don't have anything to say to them, go into vinyl repair. Where did I get that? I got that from the Gospel of John. There's so much in John to feed the intellect. And maybe we'll get to some of that as we go through this study. There's so much there, the place where elephants swim. It is deep and it's profound. But don't forget, don't ever forget it's about you. It's about your loneliness and it's about your fear. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus said, I will come to you. It's about you. Aren't you glad? And then thirdly, the Gospel of John, when you read it, it's not only about Jesus and it's not only about us. It's about love. Uh, John 3, 16. If you, you all know what that says. You know, I have a friend. Her name's Mary. She's going through a really hard time right now. If you think about Mary, pray for her and her husband, Mo. Mary, there was a Swedish lady living across the street from her, and she had the privilege of pointing this Swedish lady to Jesus, and they were going through scriptures, and Mary told me, Steve, I never shared John 3.16 with her because I thought everybody knows that. There's that guy at professional football games that puts up the sign. John 3.16 is wonderful and powerful, but it's pedestrian because it's used so often. So I shared with her everything in Scripture, and she said, I'll never forget her shout as she ran across the street, shouting, oh, Mary, oh, Mary. Let me show you what I found. And she ran into Mary's kitchen, opened her Bible, and read John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends. Jesus said, they will know you are Christians by your love. 
And so throughout John, and indeed the three letters of John, and even, although it's a little bit more hidden in the book of Revelation, you'll find stuff about a God who loves, not a wishy, squishy love, but a love that is hard as nails driven through a man's hand. And they stretched his hand out, and he said, I love you this much. Two or three years ago, I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I may have told you, I kidded people when I'd be teaching in places that I'd saying, I'm going there to kill a Catholic for Jesus. <laughs> One guy said to me, you better not say anything. You better not even kid about it there. You're going to be in trouble number of pastors have been reading one of my books and they invited me to come. And so every evening I was in a different church in Belfast and had an opportunity. I tasted uh, uh, Guinness. You ever drunk that stuff? If you like it, you're crazy. That's awful stuff. I'm a teetotaler, but that's axle grease. If I ever do drink, and I won't because I'm an addictive personality, and if I got drunk, I'd say what I meant, and, I, uh, and, I, and you would be shocked. But I, but I tasted Guinness and spit it out. That's the worst stuff. But I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and I met so many wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ. Some were Roman Catholics and some were Protestants. I spoke at a breakfast and sat by a guy whose brother had killed 17 Protestants. By the way, did you hear about the man who was walking down a street in Belfast and uh, somebody came out of an alley, grabbed him from behind and put a knife to his throat. And, he's, and the voice to his horror said, you uh, Catholic or you a Protestant? And he thought, gosh, if I say I'm a Catholic and he's a Protestant, I'm dead. If I say uh, uh, I'm a Protestant and he's a Catholic, I'm dead. And then he had this bright idea. He said, sir, I'm Jewish. And to his horror, the voice behind him said, I must be the luckiest Arab in all of Northern Ireland. <laughs> I have a friend who lives in Detroit and he made a fortune on billboards and he wanted to do something about what was going on in Northern Ireland and he didn't know what to do. But it was his business, so he decided that this is what he'd do, and he did it. He put up billboards all over Northern Ireland and in Belfast, and there was a message on it. I love you. Is that okay? Signed, Jesus. Some good's happening in that place, and I loved being there and seeing it. And so this gospel is one that'll teach you about love that's profound and real and deep. And when you finish it, you'll know that you are loved. Because again, he said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends. Fourthly, the Gospel of John is not only about Jesus, us, and love. It's about power. 
John 14 is, by the way, a high point in all of Scripture to teach on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're Presbyterians, and we don't talk much about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is wild like a wind. You can't control it. And Presbyterians are very much into control. We do things decently. That's control. And in order, that's control. And you can't control the Holy Spirit. But read the promises in John 14 about the power that it truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. My, you raise people from the dead. The blind could see the cripples through their crutches in the air. You can hear the clank of the beggar's cups on the side, and you say, I'm going to do more than that. Greater works will you do than I do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You ask me anything in my name, and I will do it. Well, let me explain those verses to you. Let me explain to you why Jesus didn't mean what you thought he was saying. Let me take away the power and the joy and the hope you get from recognizing that we worship a supernatural God and we live a supernatural life and we have a right to expect supernatural things to happen in our lives. No, I'm not charismatic. But if I'm sick and you're a Calvinist, you stay away from me. I want a charismatic to pray for me. <laughs> Read about the Holy Spirit. I will not leave you without comfort. I will come to you. He will teach you all truth. I remember when we had healing services at Key Biscayne down the state a ways. And God told me to do it, and it really blew me away. I thought, I can't do that. She said, yeah, you can. You do it in your office all the time when the elders play for the sick. All you got to do is do it publicly. And I'm going to show you something that's going to be really good. And he did. I'm, did I tell you the oil that I used and what I put it in? Let me tell you something. If you, if you meet one of the elders from Key Biscayne, don't tell them this because they still don't know. We had a guy who ran the local Vernon's drugstore on Key Biscayne who was an atheist. And I realized that if I was going to do this, the elders were going to have to have little vials of oil so they could anoint people and pray for them. And I did it within the context of communion. People came forward for the Eucharist. And if they needed prayer, they backed off. And a team of elders would come to them and pray for them. And it was, it was so powerful. One time a girl from England walked in late in the service, turned around and walked out. And I saw her later and I said, Judy, what'd you leave for? She said, something's going on there and I'm not a Christian. And I don't want to be a Christian. And I knew if I stayed, I would become one. So I went to Vernon's drugstore to look for something to put the oil in. And Vernon said, Steve, what you looking for? And I said, I don't, I'm, I'll find it, never mind. And he said, well, I can help you. What do you need? And I said, trust me, you wouldn't understand. 
He said, I'll understand. What are you looking for? So I said to him, Vernon, you're not going to understand this, but there's an ancient practice in the church, uh, a ritual, a liturgy, if you will, where elders anoint people with oil who are sick and have needs, and they pray for them. And I need something to put the oil in. He said, I got just what you want. And I, I said, what? He said, you won't use them. I said, well, I might. What have you got? And he brought out a stack of urine sample bottles. Oh, my. And they were perfect. <laughs> I mean, they really were. And I, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. I got to get back to John. But <laughs> So I got them back and put, it was olive oil. It doesn't work unless you use olive oil. And your kid, if baptized in the water of the Jordan, will have a wonderful, powerful life. I had people go to Israel and bring back that dirty water from Jordan. And they wanted their baby baptized in that stuff. They didn't know it. And they don't know it. Too. I'm telling you a lot of secrets. I go back to the bathroom, pour out the dirty, germ-filled water and wash out the container and put clean water in it and baptize that baby. And there, there are adults all over this country who think they were baptized in the water from Jordan, and they never were. But at any rate, I had these elders walking around, and they didn't know what they were holding it in. And, um, and, it was, and, and I was serving communion and dismissing the tables as they would come forward. Every time I'd look up, these elders would walk by me, and I'd get the tickles. And I thought, I've got to quit thinking about this, because if I don't stop thinking about it, we're not going to get through this service. And that was when the man who had authorized us for over 20 years and not a single night without pain stood up and danced. And his wife said, Steve, generally I'm the believer and he's the doubter. But I keep touching him and saying, are you sure you don't have any pain? I'll never forget when the lady was cured of herpes. And I said, God, cripples, that's okay. But sexually transmitted disease, don't do that. And he said, be quiet, put the oil on. Let me do what I'm going to do. There was a lady there, a young kid that was going into surgery for a, a meningitis thing. And, they, and it was awful. And they decided to give her one more test. And it was gone. And I never told my people about all that. I didn't want them to get centered on the magic tricks. I wanted them to see Jesus. But I want you to know it was a powerful time. And it reminded me that my prayers are not just words of agreement with God. My prayers are times when I plead for him to do something and to do it quick. Anne Lamont is one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite people. She cusses like a sailor. Her politics are atrocious. But she knows Jesus and she knows him deep. I, I interviewed her one time, and she wanted to not even do the interview. And you know what? Have I told you this? You know, I forget. If I should stick with my notes is what I should do. But, but she said, uh, 
She said, could we hurry? She was in Denver and I was in Miami. I was using one of the studios there to call her and do the interview. Could we do this quick? I'm late. And I said, yeah, but I need to tell you something that you need to hear. I said, you know those fundies, the ones who don't like you, who say bad things about you? And she said, yes. I said, I'm one of them. And I just wanted you to know that I loved your book and I've sold more copies of it than you have. And I think you're something else and you're my sister. And she melted. We talked for over, we had to divide the interview up into segments, it was so long. And at the end, you know what she said to me? She said, Steve, and she's almost childlike. She said, Steve, do you, if we ever met, do you know what we would do? And I said, no, Ann, what would we do? And she said, we would hold hands and tell each other stories about Jesus. Anne says she believes in three kinds of prayer. God, help me. Secondly, well. Thirdly, thank you. We forget sometimes, don't we? We sometimes forget that what happened to us when we were drawn to Christ is that we were given power bigger and more awesome than anything you can imagine. And when Satan lies to you about it, and he lies to Presbyterians about it, when Satan lies to you about it, tell him to go to hell where he belongs. That's his place. Not in your mind telling you that God is helpless to help you. It's not only about Jesus and us and love and power. It's about meaning. I got to move this on. Uh, do you know who Michael Card is, the singer? He's a dear friend of mine. I love him a lot. But a lot of people don't know that he's a writer too. And he's written commentaries on the Gospels. And he's written a commentary on the Gospel of John called the Gospel of Wisdom. And when I was talking to him about it, he said this. He said, if you have those red letter Bibles, at least as far as the Gospel of John is, get rid of it. Because most of John are not the words of Jesus, but the words of commentary, anointed, inerrant, totally authoritative, but commentary. I think he's right. There are times as you read through John, if you have a red letter Bible, as you read through John, when, when, when you read the words of Jesus and you'll say, that's a funny way to talk because it ain't Jesus talking. It's John under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The other gospels, they're called the synoptic gospels. Tell us what happened. John tells us what it means. And throughout the gospel, you'll see insights powerful insights that you can't get any other place in this scripture. You've heard, I'm sure you have, the story about the guys that were lost in the balloon up in the clouds. And they, the balloon came down for a little bit and they looked down, there was a farmer plowing in a field and one of the guys in the balloon said, hey, where are we? And the farmer took his pipe out of his mouth and looked up and said, you're in a balloon. And about that time, the balloon was taken back into the clouds. And one guy turned to the other and he said, he sounds like my accountant. Everything that he says is true, but it's not very helpful. <laughs> 
Well, there's a lot of truth in the Bible that is not very helpful. And I tell students, if you can't illustrate it, don't teach it. If it does, because it's meaningless. And this is a gospel of meaning. Sixth, or was that six? What do you mean five? Okay, all right. Sixth, that's how you keep people awake. If you're in the north and it's snowing, you can say finally, and people will pick up their coats and then keep going until they put them back down and then say finally, and they'll pick up their coats. And if you get into a rhythm, you can get a good thing going in a church. Or you can take your watch, and when the light comes through the back window, try to shine the reflection on the bald-headed guy in the first row. Or you can give the numbers in a sermon and screw them up, and that wakes everybody else. But the best thing that you can do to keep people awake is say sex. All you got to do is say it. Just stop in the middle of the sermon and say sex, and they'll give you another 10 minutes. <laughs> so sex, or sixth, whichever, the Gospel of John is no well, I don't believe I'm saying it. I'm cold stone sober. I just want you to know that. The Gospel of John, not only about Jesus, us, love, power, and meaning, it's about relationships. Oh, John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for us and for his disciples that they all must be one. He says over and over again that our witness and the nature of revival only comes when you love me and I love you. You know what I do on Tuesday nights now? I've never done this before in my entire life. I go to a Bible study group. The truth is, if you're like me and you're in a, you teach in a seminary in a town and you do media, people get views about you that are just not true. So when you go to a small group, you screw it up. The teacher can't teach because he or she gets intimidated and then they look to you as some kind of guru. And if you say, I don't have the foggiest idea, then you're going to hurt the cause of Christ. you got to smile all the time. You must never say anything profane and you must be nice. And I couldn't pull it off. So I never went to a Bible study group that I didn't teach. But Anna and I were praying, and we both decided we got to get in a small group. And God told us to. And she said, honey, I think this is of God, and I think we're supposed to do this. But we can't do it unless you keep your mouth shut. <laughs> and I have. You'd be so proud of me. I love our Bible teacher. The first night I was there, all he did was fidget and stutter. And then after a while, I've been going for over a year. He, I sit there and nod, even if he's speaking heresy. I smile and nod. And I haven't, I haven't said a word. <laughs> I really haven't said a word. And you know what's happened in the process? The Gospel of John has happened in the process. I've fallen in love with people I didn't even know before, and I've realized how deeply I need them. How deeply I need them. And there's power in that small group as we reach out to the poor in the church, the people that don't have anything to eat, as we visit the hospital rooms. We're all old. 
the hospital rooms of those of our number who are sick. It's, it's so good. It's so good because it's so John. It's so the gospel of John. And then finally, the gospel of John is not only about Jesus, us, love, power, meaning, and relationships. It's about mission. Jesus said to them again, peace I leave with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. What is mission? It's being there. The world is run by people who show. If you only hang out with Christians, you're a lump of leaven. Show up in a bar sometime. Go to a secular book study sometime. Go to places where Christians don't. Just show. And then secondly, be present. And thirdly, don't duck. That's enough. That's enough. Have you ever been to those evangelistic services uh, when the evangelist will say, turn to the person next to you and say to that person, if you go forward, I'll go with you. If you go, now that's the most manipulative thing I've ever heard in my life. Every time, and I've seen it happen a lot of times, I'm going to stand up and say, you idiot, don't do that. You're manipulating people into the kingdom and they're going to wake up in hell and wonder why. Don't do that. But that's exactly what Jesus says to us in the Gospel of John. If you go, I'll go with you. If you go, I'll go with you. I'm going to, this is going to take a little bit more time. Forgive me, but I, I just want to share this with you because it's so good. It's from and after I read this, I'll be finished. It's from a guy, William Human, and I don't even know who that is, but he wrote a book that somebody gave me called 12 New Testament Portraits. And the one about John, or from, the gospel, from John himself speaking, is so moving that I had to share it with somebody, and you're it. Listen to, listen to John, the beloved apostle. Humble, kind. Do you know his name is never mentioned in the gospel? He, he always refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. Now listen to what could be his words. To be young and to have one's full strength is a most wondrous thing. To be able to come and go as one pleases with never a thought of tomorrow is a wish devoutly to be desired for an old man. But to be old and to have most precious memories has its compensations. Even here in exile, even here standing on this barren coast, looking toward the homeland which I shall never see again, on this isle of Patmos, I must live now on the things which I have seen and touched and heard, things which few mortal men have been privileged to see and hear. I, John, saw Moses and Elijah on a holy mountain. I walked the streets of Judea with him. I watched the dead rising. 
I saw the blind able to see. I stood there and watched him hang on a cross. Those hours of agony when men finally reached the point of utter uh, hell and evil. I walked beside him as he rode into Jerusalem in triumph. I stood beside him in the courts of Herod and that of Pilate. I, I would have fought for him as valiantly as Peter, but his kingdom was not of this world, not to be won by sword and blood. Now I only have my memories. The long afternoons when we sat and listened to him talk, the evenings in the cool dusk when he spoke of the kingdom, the words of wisdom that fell from his lips as we trudged the roads from one city to the next, these memories, they're all I have now, but they are precious and they are so good. Many long afternoons I sit on the hillside overlooking the great sea and I remember our youth when we were all young and strong. We walked together, going out two by two to spread the glad tidings. Now they're all gone, those young men who were so strong, Peter the impetuous, my own brother James killed by the sword of Herod, our beloved Paul crucified in Rome, Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew and Jude, and the unfortunate Judas who betrayed him. I alone remain of the eyewitnesses of his majesty. For this reason, perhaps I have been placed in this most desolate isle so that men cannot have free access to me. Here they cannot hear those things I have to say about him who loved us and who laid down his life that we too should love each other. Why did they not kill me with a sword as they did my brother? I was closer than even all of them. I sat at his side and leaned on his breast. I stood with him through the trial. Why did they not take vengeance on me? I long, I long to see him again face to face after so many years and to hear his voice. Surely there must be a reason why I've been spared and all the others taken, surely it is a divine providence. There is yet another task for me to do. I'm an old man now, worn in body and soul and spirit, but surely there must be something else. Oh, John, there is. Rest easy, old man. We listened to your witness, and your words were true. And we saw him as you did. You think about that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And for more great audio, just click the audio button in the main menu of the app. That will connect you with the latest episodes of Key Life, Steve Brown, etc., and you think about that.